Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, he is married to actress and podcast host Ilana Levine, who happens to be me. Welcome, Dominic Famusa. My guest today is Dominic Famusa. Dominic is best known for playing Kevin Payton opposite Edie Falco on Showtime's critically acclaimed series Nurse Jackie. He has appeared in many films, some of which include Allegiance, Focus, Helena from the Wedding, The Guru, Grilled, Forever, and 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. On television, he's also appeared in episodes of Charmed, Bones, Sopranos, Elementary, Blue Bloods, Sex in the City, and Persons of Interest. He is currently filming Homeland and for NBC, a new series called Taken. On stage, he made his Broadway debut in Wait Until Dark opposite Marissa Tomei and Quentin Tarantino. Other theater credits include Tape, Sick, Passion Play, Take Me Out, Fault Lines, and Stage Kiss. He was nominated for a SAG Award, voted one of People Magazine's hottest men in comedy. He was quarterback of his high school football team. He lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, Dominic Famusa. Wow, thank you. Am I pronouncing that right? Is that it is Famusa? Correct. Yes, well done. Thank you, you did your very, research. Thank very you good. very much. So, one of the things that I consider defining about yourself, and you can agree or disagree, is aside from growing up in the Midwest, which is a very special thing, you are one of 10 children seven sisters and two brothers, including a twin sister. And do you know all of their names? Well, it's funny because I remember when we first met, you had me tell you all of their names, and I got a little nervous because <laughs> I thought I might 
I might forget somebody here. I do know all of their names. All right. Do you uh, want to say them yes, right let's now? Let's do that. Uh, Elizabeth, Joseph, Teresa, Mary, Linda, Vincent, Barbara, my twin sister Laura, and the baby Nancy. And how old is the baby Nancy? She's forty-five. <laughs> <laughs> when everyone's gathered around the Thanksgiving dinner tables, everyone's like, where's the baby Nancy? Forever known as the baby Nancy. She will never outgrow that. I read a quote where you said, to get to the bathroom first in the morning, I would sometimes sleep in the tub. Is that <laughs> a fact? That, that might be a slight exaggeration. But, it, you know, in all honesty, uh, as you know, we had one Full bath. Show so, so um, what we would do is in the morning when everyone was getting ready for school, we would have some sort of semblance of a, of a preordained order. Uh-huh. And then the way we knew the bathroom was now available for the next person was the person would open the door just enough so that their face would stick out, but <laughs> no body part would be showing. And they'd yell something like, clear the hall, clear the hall. And so everyone would have to make sure that they went back into their rooms if wherever they were. Because the person would run out of the because, bathroom naked? Yes, very often. Were there uh, not enough towels no, for all I 10 of you? No, I don't know why they did that. We would dry off and then leave the towel in the hamper or, or down the chute or whatever. I don't know, but we always had to clear the hall. Yeah, and then most, I think most mornings I was probably the last person in there because I didn't, you know, I didn't really care and it took very little time. Well, boy, that is no longer. Oh, you think I take it? <laughs> I just want to say, first of all, we say clear the hall now for little, different reasons. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, That's true, but you know, it's so funny because... As a kid, you just think whatever you're doing is normal, right? right? You know, I get asked about my big family and I... I always say it's like I didn't think twice about it. I mean, it didn't really occur to me that this was totally strange. I mean, obviously, most kids I knew did not have anywhere near as many siblings as I did. But, you know, I, I had this healthy sense as a child that whatever I did, whatever my parents were doing was like the thing that should be done. That's you nice. Know? Yeah, it was. It was good. Do you feel like it made you feel special? You know, because I had so many older siblings— my name carried a certain, you know, cachet, as it were, as I went through the school system. Uh, so that was kind of cool because most of my siblings, I think, had made a good impression on most teachers before I got there. So so you kind of start the day with, you know, with a good check mark already mm -hmm. in there. When you share the same last name as nine other people in a community, how do you get well, noticed I, for being an individual? I was a little different in that I was very into sports and I was... Uh, you know, I, I sports was something that I, at my level at that at that school, I, I excelled at. So, mm -hmm. I was the starting quarterback. I was this, you know, one of the starting pitchers on the baseball team. I was the starting point guard on the basketball team. So, so that was one way to sort of you know create an identity, you know, of of my own. But you know, getting back to this idea, I just I had a very healthy sense of uh, of security, and and I remember. Um, which, which I think, looking back, was was so total, kind of unwarranted. But why? My dad, I think, you know, it, there was a lot of pressure to raise ten children, and uh, I'm sure it was stressful. But I never. Uh, you weren't aware a, of that. Well, not as a young person, for sure. And and I, things would happen where, like, things would break down in our in our house, or like I remember uh, we had a blacktop driveway that was crumbling, and you know, my friends would be like, "When are you guys going to, you know, get this?" paved over and I'd be like, oh no, we like it this way. <laughs> this is a choice. You know, <laughs> Those aren't weeds. That's know, a garden. Or like my friends would come over and open the refrigerator because they couldn't believe 
that uh, my father had bought more than one gallon of milk at a time. And like they would play a game before they opened it where they like they bet how many gallons are going to be in the fridge when they open it. And I think the record was five gallons of milk in my refrigerator. Did you come from a theatrical family? My father uh, was a musician uh, as a young man, and um, he grew up in New Orleans, and uh, he played in a big band. It's funny, my family sort of skips a generation. My father was born in 1922. He would have served in World War II, but he had um, he had a broken eardrum, and, and he really wanted to go, but they, they wouldn't take him. So... He's of that era. He's of the big band era. And he played in his 20s in nightclubs down there. And he made some albums. And we still have those albums. And we, you know, we played uh, one of those songs at our wedding, which was so touching. But um, did you like your wedding? My wedding was awesome. Great. I wish you could have seen it. It was really good. <laughs> so my father was a musician. He ended up getting married at, a, at, at the time. It was a, it was an, a, a late marriage, he was in his 30s, which was very old, you know, for someone of his generation to be married. He ended up having 10 kids, and he just, he had to make money to survive and support his, his family. So um, he put the music away. But I think that music and the desire to be an artist is something that literally got passed down to me, not only through my genes, but through, you know, just uh, everything about my father said to me, spoken and unspoken, that, you know, he, he, desired that and in some ways regretted not being able to do that. You know, my dad, my dad's dad was a, an immigrant from Sicily, uh, a little town called Castelvetrano, which is just south of Palermo. He came to Ellis Island in 1914. And I'm not sure exactly how or why, but he ended up in New Orleans in part because there was a significant, small but significant Sicilian population in New Orleans at the time. And uh, he just, you know, he followed the relatives or whoever, the friends, mm -hmm. and um, he found a nice young Sicilian girl, and they had my father. And then they followed a relative up to Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, I think the story goes that there was a funeral they were attending, and the guy who had passed away had owned a small grocery store. My grandfather was asked to take over that grocery store. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So at some point... You went from being maniacally obsessed with doing sports. Now you're maniacally obsessed with watching sports. But at some point in there, there was a transition from quarterback of your football team to sort of quarterback of your theater team, well, I think as you, it were. I think you have a slight misunderstanding of this, of this scenario. Okay. In that I was always obsessed with both. It just so happens that as I got older, the option of continuing to play uh, certainly in any organized fashion, was no longer an option. So you see me today uh, as someone who watches a lot of football. I love the Green Bay Packers mm -hmm. uh, almost as much as I love me. anything else. No, no, not close to, to my family. But yeah, I'm a huge Green Bay Packer fan. I'm a huge Brett Favre fan. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'll tell you, in all honesty, that is a connection to, again, a, a connection to my father. I watched, I think, initially to just be by his side and... It's a big part of our connection. It's a big part of our relationship. So when you went off to college, you perhaps were going to begin playing football, but slowly you transitioned into being part of the theater community. And was there a point where you thought, I want to be a professional actor? I had a moment when I was a junior in college. And what happened was all of my friends who were 
who are political science majors, or we call them government, actually, they were getting ready to take the LSAT. And I, I think I had my first panic attack. I was miserable. I was very, very depressed. I came to the realization that in a year's time, if I don't make a choice to do something about it, I could very well never be on a stage again. Uh-huh. And that scared the crap out of me. And so I took action to remedy that situation. I dropped all plans to go to law school. I applied to various uh, MFA acting uh, schools, uh, graduate programs, and um, I got into a couple of them. I took a, a full scholarship at the University of Illinois in Champaign, and, uh, and there we go. Thus began my journey. So what was your first professional job? The first time I really got paid, I did a production of Hamlet with Campbell Scott as Hamlet and uh, Tom McCarthy, who you know has gone on to become a, a brilliant film director. Spotlight. He played Laertes. I played Marcellus. Do you remember any of your lines from that play? Well, Marcellus has the very famous line, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. I want you to think back to your very first resume, because we all had to start at some point with a resume that basically had only college theater credits well, on I made, it, right? I made things up, though. So what were your special <laughs> skills when you first started? Um, I could juggle. Mm-hmm. I could do stage combat. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a legitimate driver's license. <laughs> I could try to do an accent or two. I, I could schlep things. I was very strong. Uh-huh. And that, and you said schlepper, special yeah, skills, schlepping. Schlepper. That's hilarious. You know, when I learned how to juggle, I learned at the, at the Wisconsin Shakespeare Festival, which doesn't even exist anymore. I was 20 years old, I think. And I came home that summer and showed my dad, who watched, and then there was a pause, and he said, well, who told you to do that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that kind of support exactly. that got you to where you are I today. Totally understood. That drive. Making things come full circle. Uh, you know, the, one of the persons who really helped me get the job in Stratford was a guy named Sheldon Patinkin, Mandy's cousin. And I didn't know him well, but in all honesty, that guy really helped me start my career. So now that I, I'm going to be working on Homeland, I haven't worked with Mandy yet, but I look forward to the opportunity to, uh, to tell him that. Do you think that's why you got Homeland? Yes, that's yes. why. You know, Dominic and I met, we did a play together at the Kennedy Center. So we, should, we were love interests in the play. That's right. And, and we, we kissed on stage yes. before we ever kissed in real life. And, and what's kind of remarkable about that... You're a very that, good onstage kisser, by you, the way. You clearly, I mean, so are you. a very good impression. And I only bring this up because as the story unfolds, uh, you and I fell in love in the play. The characters fall in love. That's right. And you and I fell in love, yes. although it was confusing. But it turns out... We were falling in love in both... On, uh, both on stage and, and off. And I remember that we went on a tour. Our dear friend, Josh Stamberg, magnificent actor, your best friend, best man in our wedding. His mom, Susan Stamberg of NPR fame, mm-hmm. uh, invited us to take a tour of NPR in Washington. And I'll yeah. never forget peering through while they were recording All Things Considered going, oh, my God. This another, is, talk about the room where it happens. Another- and. I had this aha moment because we weren't on set in rehearsal or doing the play. I'm madly in love with this guy. And I remember we then went to lunch afterwards and I was telling you that you should absolutely figure out how to get back together with your (laughs) ex-girlfriend. Because I was so in love with you and so freaked out. I was like, oh my God, I'm totally in love with this person at an age where if you're in love with someone, you could 
conceivably Wait, is this, is marry this... them. But I just remember I was so nervous inside and you were telling me that you had been on and off again with this woman and you loved her, but you just weren't sure. And I was like, you, you go get her. You go get her back. Huh. Because I knew if that didn't happen, that I would spend the rest of my life with you. And I didn't even know if you liked me. You were so chill. But it was undeniable to me at that moment that whether or not I had the great fortune of marrying you, I wanted to marry somebody like you. And I still feel that way. (laughs) So needless to say, as you made your way to New York, when you got here, how much money would you say you had in your pocket? $3,000. So for someone, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so everything is legal in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Coming over the George Washington Bridge to start my career in acting. Took about 25 minutes. It took 25 minutes. But for you, coming from this family in the Midwest with no connections to New York City and no real plan. Well, no, there was a plan. I wasn't going home. I was going to die in New York City. Mm. (laughs) I mean, well, you I, probably will. and I hopefully will, but yes. um, there what was no chance. Mean? I was failure was not an option. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I had no idea how I was going to do it. I literally knew maybe three or four people in town. I mean, I knew Tom McCarthy. I knew uh, a lovely woman named Amy Kitts, casting, casting director. director. So I had an in there, and and in fact, Amy was uh, instrumental in helping me get my first agent. Uh, did you take a bus to New York City? How did you get here? No, I flew. From... I flew, but I flew on I flew on an airline that I believe declared bankruptcy the day I flew them, which I thought was a bad omen. Uh, Kiwi no. Air? No. Nope. I was 100% completely myopic. I went through the 3000 bucks in about maybe four months. I was dead broke. I had a buddy that I was sharing a bedroom with because we didn't want to... We, we built bunk beds. I was 27 years old living in a bunk bed, you know. Um, that is so hot. That is so sad. How did that work? <laughs> it's a little weird when you tried to bring somebody you? home. It sounds like prison. Oh, my God. I can't believe I did that. But mm-hmm. I did. But it just shows you the commitment that I had. I was, uh, I was just trying to get by. And I knew instinctively that the way to do it was to keep my monthly nut as low as possible. So I, I did things like that. I ate ramen noodles and I ate spaghetti every night. And I, uh, you know, I do just enough shifts at the restaurant to survive and no more. And get a staff meal. Get a staff meal, which I loved. I still enjoy a free meal. <laughs> I wrapped on Homeland, on, the, on Homeland the other day and I was uh, about to go home and it was lunchtime. And, you know, I went in and had lunch. <laughs> With the crew before I left. They were like, Dominic, and they're you, like, you, you rapped you, yesterday. You know, what are you doing here? Like, Crafty's you know, really good. Old habits die hard. That's right. Yeah. To go from dreaming of coming to New York and living in a one-room bunk bed and eating ramen noodles to finding yourself not just on a series, but a series that shoots in New York with truly one of the most magnificent actresses of our generation, Edie Falco. And that must have been kind of amazing. It was a dream job in every sense. It kept me home with my family in New York City. I was working with someone I consider to be the best, not just actress, actor, period, Mm -hmm. you know, on television or in any medium. And it was great writing. And there was just, uh, it was all positives and no negatives. It was a dream. I had John Hickey on the show and we were talking about what makes the environment of a set 
work really well and be inviting versus a set that might not feel that way. And he was saying that one of the reasons The Good Wife, for example, is just a place everyone wants to work is because of who is number one on the call sheet, which is Juliana Margulies, that mm-hmm. she sets the mm-hmm. tone in every way in terms of how she treats people, mm-hmm. how prepared she is. Would you say Edie and now Claire Danes, who's I assume is number one on the call sheet, Talk yeah. to me a little bit about what that is, those qualities. It's so critical. The The lead actor on the show sets the tone for that show. In what way? There is an energy that is palpable on a set, uh, good and bad. And when things aren't going well, everybody feels it. Everybody tenses up. Mm-hmm. In seven seasons, I never once saw Edie Falco yell at anyone, get visibly upset with anything. She did not play the diva card even remotely mm. one single time. And and I worked with her for seven years. That's amazing. That really sets the tone and, and the uh, the work environment that you're in. And it filters down. And so because Edie wasn't like that, nobody else was like that. I remember we were shooting. It was late in the in the process. I think we were in season five. We were at a wedding. And one of the crew guys just started screaming at somebody about something. I have no idea. I can't remember what it was. And everyone turned. And it was so shocking because we never heard that kind of thing on our set in its entire run. And I remember Edie taking it in. She didn't say anything, but I could see that she was displeased that that was going on. In her home. Exactly. And suffice it to say, it never happened again. So, you know, and the truth and the truth is I, I'm very new to Homeland, but I can tell you this, Claire Danes is a very warm, accessible, generous person and actor, and um she immediately made me feel uh, at home, as did the show's creator Alex Gonza. And I can tell part of their success is coming from the same kind of thing. They just run a wonderful set and everyone feels safe. And you do your best work because everyone feels appreciated and supported. And um, that's everything. I mean, that's true whether you're doing a play, a television show, a movie. That's that's about as important a thing as anything when you're making uh, – making the show. So obviously the craft or the process involved in making a play versus television film is so different. First and foremost, maybe because of the luxury of time. Do you work differently? Well, you definitely use your time differently. I mean, I think in the theater, we love to really talk about backstory and history. And we talk about bigger ideas. We talk about what this means in the larger conversation of of our uh, community, of our mm. world. We talk politics and and uh, history and socioeconomic issues. The theater is, uh, is sort of a philosopher's realm. Television doesn't feel that way. You don't have the time. You know, it's all in some ways based on time is money. So in television, because you have so many people and you have a crew of, of 100 or more at any one time working on the show, whether it be on the set or in the offices around the set, you, you, you move things along and you don't sit down and, and really talk about what this really means in the bigger picture, which is not to say the writers don't, mm-hmm. because obviously they do mm-hmm. in their writer's room. And then, you know, anything that, that you need uh, is, is readily answered and uh, discussed if, it, if it's pertinent to a specific moment in the show. So I think the biggest difference is um, the making of a play is a very sort of slow 
methodical kind of process in which you get four to five weeks to really figure out this one chunk of, you know, an hour and a half, two hours of time. You know, you put together an hour show in usually eight shooting days. So it's much faster in that sense. Now, from living with you, I know that you like to go in to every audition completely off book. You know your material. No, I think it's imperative. Inside and out. Yeah. Tell me why you do that. Well, I think it came out of a, a realization that if I don't know if I don't know my lines one hundred percent down pat, I will never be comfortable enough to let go of that and really breathe and be present and just simply exist, which is what you're going for, right? I remember uh, when Slattery was on, he talked about how it's all about being comfortable. You know, you want to relax as much as possible to be as natural as possible in front of that camera. And the only way I'm going to get there is if I have 48 to 72 hours beforehand where I just memorize those lines like, you know, like the back of my hand, like my telephone number, so that when What's I What's your get... telephone number? <laughs> well, maybe I'll give that to you at the end. Thank you. If I don't do that first... Mm-hmm. I've got no chance in hell of, of getting to that level of relaxation that, that John talked about. So, yeah. So, and I know it's, it's, it's considered uh, sacrilege to a lot of actors. They, they insist, don't memorize your lines until you know what you're saying and why you're saying it. And I totally respect that approach. Believe me, I, I've tried that. It doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I've got to be completely off book. Not only off book, but I've got to be able to do it in double time. Like just, boop, 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 boop. those are my lines. And now I'm going to slow it down. And I'm going to breathe. And now if my, my acting partner does something, okay, I take that in and I'll let that inform what I'm going to, how I'm going to say this next line, which I've memorized. And the line's not going to change, but the inflection will change. The, the intent behind the line could change, which is wonderful. I think all of us figured out our process along the way. You don't know when you first start out that I'm going to be the actor who needs to know his lines cold, backwards, forwards, before going in the room. When you first started auditioning, I think I recall, you're going to have to remind me. <laughs> so there which was, is, you're, you're remembering a, uh, an audition I had for a television show years ago, probably over 10 years ago now, called uh, Judging Amy. And I went in and I, I just couldn't get it right. And I knew it wasn't right. And I knew that the only chance of getting the gig was to make it right. So I stopped, I think, four times mm-hmm. and said, oh, I'm sorry, can I begin again? Uh-huh. And finally, the, the executive producer, showrunner, whoever he was, said, wait, you know what? It's all good. We're going to have callbacks. And you're, <laughs> you're gonna, you know, we're gonna, you're going to get another chance here. That's that's where you could do it again, uh-huh. except I, there's not going to be a callback for you. got in the parking, you know, this is in L.A., so I walked back to my car in the parking lot, and then it dawned on me that this part starts shooting tomorrow morning at <laughs> 6 a.m. You know, speaking of auditions, it's just such, it's something I, you know, I, I've listened to your podcast. You're Thank very, you. You know, it's very good. Thank you. Um, and I love hearing the stories about auditioning, and I love hearing really successful actors say they still have to audition. Or want to. Or, well, yeah, want to if it's a part they really want. And, and that's that's a time when I don't mind it. But in general, I just still think auditioning is so uh, – it's such a uh, an unpleasant experience uh, because you really feel vulnerable when you're doing it. So you've had 
a really great run of things. Obviously, this year in particular, you're sort of juggling a lot of jobs and your family and your children. And what gives you the same drive today? I live with you. I see that you approach every script that comes to you with the same energy and passion and enthusiasm that people who just got out of school. Mm -hmm. And I find that remarkable. Yeah. Absolutely inspiring and remarkable. What is it about you that keeps you energized? I am really lucky in that deep down I am a very big optimist. I just think the next job, the next everything is going to be better than the last. And obviously that's not true. It doesn't always work that way. But I just, I'm driven because I know that I have more to give. You know, I'm lucky. I, I love acting more than I did 20 years ago. And I was completely obsessed 20 mm -hmm. years ago. I want to figure it out. There are some people, you know, that I've come across in my life who, who I respect. Who are your heroes? Well, you know, I think about, as I'm sure most of us do, I think about Phil Hoffman all the time, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I didn't know Phil well. And certainly, you know, you'll have actors on this on this show who can tell you, um, you know, intimate close-up stories about him. But, but I knew him a little bit. I had done a play with The Lab. His theater company. His theater company. And um, he was around, and it was around the time he was doing Death of a Salesman, actually. So we would talk from time to time, and he would see the show because he was very good friends with the playwright Brett Leonard. And, and Mimi had done the costumes. His uh, partner, Mimi, had done, Mimi O'Donnell had done the costumes. Anyway, I think of Phil, and I think about his work ethic and how he just was always about... All the other things that come with acting, he didn't care about. He was about the work, and he wanted to do the best work possible. And I always ask myself, am I really exhausting all options? Am I really digging into this as deeply as I can? Is there some stone I haven't unturned that will be the key to this? And that's how I look at it. And, you know, I mean, I'm not nearly as gifted as Phil, so the result comes out maybe differently than it would in the hands of someone like that. But I don't think I'm being shortchanged on my effort. And um, and I take great pride in that. So, yeah, that's how I get through the hard times. I mean, look, you know, you live with me. You know, I'm not, I'm a lot more fun when I'm working. When I have a gig, life is much more, you know, enjoyable for all of us because I can be cranky pants. And, you know, I need to work. It's such an important part of me. I need you to work. I know. <laughs> <laughs> because I have a stack of bills right That's here, my right, love. Baby. Well, I just want to say, I don't know if our listeners will know this today, happens to be Dominic Famous's birthday. And uh, I just want to say on air that I love you so much. And I want to wish you a happy birthday. Oh, I love you. And I couldn't imagine a better way to spend it than in this podcast booth with you and uh, getting was... to talk to you without life distracting <laughs> us. The only thing that would make it better is if our kids were in this room with us yeah, at the but... same time, because it's been an amazing ride. Happy birthday, Dominic Famusa. Thank you. I love you. I love you too. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com.
I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. Thanks for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.